today's scripture begins with Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great wisdom arose, and the waves were breaking onto the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is then this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of, oh my gosh, what's that? Geranices? Uh, and when the, Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man of an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out loud with a loud voice, he said, what have, you, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked them, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the, in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them that what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, begged, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to pray, proclaiming the Catholic how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Thank you. Uh, thanks for reading such a long story. Uh, a few months ago, the first time I preached, I'm sure everyone here was a little concerned, not really sure what was going to happen. Uh, this time I know everyone's excited with the excitement of a substitute teacher, because you're going to get out early, probably, <laughs> compared to Jeremy. Um, so whatever happens, I know you're excited about an early dinner. But uh, we're starting this, we're continuing this series, The Committed Life, um, and we've been in it for a few months now. And uh, we're trying to open ourselves up to search, to be searched and known by God, and to see what that means in our lives, in the minute details and the crazy, tough decisions. Uh, last week, Jeremy taught on John 17, and he gave us the call of embodied love, of what it means as Jesus' disciples to embody his love. 
uh, not just to know Jesus, not to know about him, but to embody his love and reflect that as disciples of Christ. Uh, it's a call that is an invitation to transformation through God's examination of our life to reflect his character. Uh, so this week I thought a great way to do that would be to look at this long story in Mark that is weird and kind of strange, and through this story, uh, change our vision. Uh, a vision of how we see God, how we see our roles as disciples of Christ, and connected to all of that, how we see the people around us. Um, how we are transformed into loving as Christ did, as true disciples of him. So just to prepare you, uh, similar to Chaz's teaching two weeks ago, we're going to have three brief pauses for reflection during the message. Um, but with some guided questions, um, I think it will help us look into it and get into it and apply this really strange, crazy story to our life. First, let's start with the story and how we, we see Jesus, how it changes our view of Jesus. Uh, this story starts at the beginning, or at the very end of chapter 4, with Jesus calming the storm. It's a story we've probably all heard many times. Uh, Jesus calms the waters. He's unbothered by the storm. He's happy to just release it and go back to sleep. While this is true, I think it, we tend to ignore at times the, the biblical significance of what Jesus is actually doing calming the storm. And I think by understanding that, we'll get a deeper view of who God is, and we'll be able to see him more fully. In the Old Testament, water is a very important theme, often associated with the chaos that comes from either not living under God's control or being actively opposed to uh, God's control of creation. Uh, we see this first in the flood, the flood from the waters above and below that come and destroy all of creation except for Noah. We see it in Exodus as the waters swallow up the Egyptian army chasing the Israelites whole. We even see it in Jonah with him being cast out into the sea. There's a clear theme in the Old Testament of this water enveloping us. Uh, yet, in each of these Old Testament stories about the sea, God saves his people through overpowering the forces of chaos, the forces opposed to his creation and goodwill and command, whether that be human, spiritual, or both in rebellion. We know that God saves Noah in a remnant. We know that God parts the waters for the Israelites twice. We know that Jonah survives the fish and goes into Nineveh to preach. So, at the very beginning, we're already seeing a greater significance to this act than simply Jesus has power and is unbothered. Dr. Greg Boyd summarizes the scene well at the end of Mark 4, and he says this, The raging sea is often identified with forces of chaos that oppose Yahweh and that threaten the order of creation in the Old Testament. Hence, by mastering this life-threatening demonic force, Jesus is reacting, reenacting the frequent Old Testament motif of Yahweh mastering cosmic forces of chaos. If we apply that to the, our story here, mastering the cosmic forces of chaos and destruction, I think in this story we see that, that force being shown in a force that divides people. 
In the Gospel of Mark, there are many accounts of the Sea of Galilee, of, the Jew, of Jesus and his disciples on the sea, crossing the sea, fishing. But in only two accounts do we hear about this storm and this wind and the waves against us. We see it here and in Mark 6 as well, um, where the wind is against them and Jesus walks on the water. So two miraculous stories. I think there's a connection between them in comparison to all the other stories of Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. In both of these accounts where the wind is against them, there's a great storm. Jesus and the disciples are crossing from Galilee, from their homes, to the Gentile region, to the country of the Gerasenes uh, in this account. I don't think this is a coincidence that the wind and the waves are only against the disciples in the account of Mark when the disciples are leaving their home and going to a Gentile region. A region unclean, with unclean people, that the Israelites have quite intentionally tried to remove themselves from through rituals of cleanliness and purity. The nation of Israel was intentionally set apart from these Gentiles to be better than them in their view. And Jesus continually, or in two times in Mark, sends his disciples back to the Gentiles. And both times there's a storm against them that Jesus must calm. So as we enter that introduction to the story, we're going to start with a reflection. Um, a slides are going to appear for us uh, that will help us, I think, put this into our own lives a bit. In this story, we see Jesus controlling the cosmic powers of chaos, those set against him, and going to a people that oppose the Israelites. So take some time, take just a few moments and reflect on this prompt. This is just a guiding prompt, just a little question that you can process. But the power of Jesus is revealed in this story. Ask the Spirit to search you and reveal what powers, forces, or ideas prevent you from recognizing Jesus' power overall, or powers that oppose you going where Jesus is calling you. So take a moment and do that individually.
hopefully um, it's not that weird to do silence in a sermon again after the series, but it was weird to be on this end of it. That was kind of funny. <laughs> but let's continue on in our story a bit. As we move into chapter 5, we see after Jesus calms the water, allows them to reach the Gentile land. They enter into Gentile territory and are immediately presented with an, an encounter that I would say checks off all the boxes in ancient Israel as extremely evil. It's a setting for the ancient Jew almost on the level with the gates of hell that we imagine today. As someone that uh, graduated from Texas A&M, this is Austin for me. Um, <laughs> In, uh, <laughs> uh, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. <laughs> okay, getting back to the story. Uh, verses 1 through 3 on the screen say that the disciples went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got off the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So while we pick up on that this is a bad thing at minimum, I don't think we quite realize the full details uh, that the ancient Jewish reader would pick on, would notice and be just appalled by and shocked that Jesus had intentionally brought them here. The first thing that picks up is a tomb. We can speak on the tomb. In ancient uh, Jewish culture, tombs are a sign of uncleanliness, uh, to say the least. They can't see or be near or walk on any graves, any tombstones, any dead bodies, essentially. Just one moment. Levitic, um, no, I'm sorry, Numbers 19 verses 11 through 13, explains it well when it says, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel. Because of the water of cleaning has not been sprinkled on them, they are unclean. Their uncleanliness remains on them. So in the common interpretation of this text, even walking on a tomb, a grave, interacting with someone that lives in tombs would be a clear sign of uncleanliness for these Jewish people, for Jesus and his disciples that they would have had to avoid. So you can imagine if, as a disciple in this story, you're probably wondering, we, Jesus just led us here. Are we now going to be cast away from our community? Can we not enter into community anymore because we're here They're, they have immediately become unclean. So that's the first part of this horrible setting that Jesus has taken his disciples to. The second one is in the narratives we see in verses 6 through 9, which reads, When he, being the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, 
What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Here, in this pit of uncleanliness, Jesus doesn't run away, but he immediately tries to heal this demon-possessed man and asks for his name. We get to the second part here of this incredible uncleanliness of this place that Jesus has led them to with a demon-possessed Gentile. But not just a demon-possessed Gentile, a Gentile whose name is Legion, for we are many. Immediately, the story keeps getting worse and worse for the early readers of the text. Not only are they in this ultimate place of uncleanliness, wondering to themselves as following Jesus is leading to them being cut off from society, but now they're in a, ter- a place with a demon-possessed Gentile that can't be bound. They're probably afraid that they might be killed. But there's also something else going on here that's kind of interesting. It's the term legion. Why is it a legion of demons in this Gentile, demon-possessed man? I think here Mark is doing something quite intentional by drawing a specific allusion here to the Roman Empire, to the Roman legion. The Roman legion, an infamous army whose whose name would strike fear into the locals of the Middle East that they controlled, the legion that crucified Jesus. So we have a setting of an unclean Gentile tomb, graves, and now we have a man that is demon-possessed by a legion of demons. And we're still confronted with the fact that Jesus directly led his disciples here. But... Not even that is the end of the uncleanliness in the story that we're going to see that would cause panic in the Israelites and his disciples. The third part is the pigs. In Mark 5, 11 through 13, it says, "A A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came and went to went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So again, this weird story keeps getting weirder and stranger. Now 2,000 pigs have just died. Um, But let's even step back a bit and think about the same ideas of ritual purity and cleanliness and what the pigs might be saying about that. In Leviticus chapter 11, verses 7 through 8, It says, and the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Just another, now our third layer of incredible ritual impurity and uncleanliness that Jews would have been banned from being able to go to. There's even one last layer of this that I'll mention, and then we'll finally get away from this uncleanliness stuff. But uh, Dr. Malka Zygers-Zimkovich, a uh, Hebrew scholar, writes this. Pigs represent the 10th legion of the Roman army, the legion that actively took part in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 CE or AD, whatever you prefer, and was known as the boar because of its prominent emblem. Emblem here is referring to like a flag or a banner, you know, like in an army that you would have a flag or banner, and theirs was of a boar. 
So this story continues to get stranger, and Jesus continues to, or and this author continues to throw in strange allusions to cleanliness, but also the Romans and the empire, and essentially every enemy of the Israelite people at the time. And again, we're confronted with the fact that Jesus intentionally led them here. So before we see what Jesus does, let's take a second moment to reflection, a few more minutes. And as the site appears on the screen, and we're confronted with Jesus leading the disciples to this place of extreme uncleanliness, a place that they would never go to, and their culture would even ban them from going to and interacting with. I want us to consider our own lives in this. Ask God to show us what people do we consider unclean, what people that God would never lead us to. Is it an uncleanliness based on their government views, their ties to the Roman legion? Or is it their culture or religion that's different? Or even past experience? Just take a moment and consider the people that you think Jesus would never send you to that are too unclean. Okay. Thank you, guys. Finally, as we continue on in this story, we get some sort of conclusion. In the next verses, we read, after the herd, the herd of pigs rushes off into the water and dies, 2,000 of them. I know it's a weird story. What happens? This is verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off 
and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. In this unclean hot spot, this gate of hell for the Jewish disciples forced there, Jesus makes all things clean. He removes the unclean pigs from the land and does it through the water, which interestingly enough, if you remember Numbers 19, says, says whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleaning has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean. Similar to this, now what does Jesus do in a weird kind of twisted way in this story? He sprinkles water on the pigs or baptizes them, but either way, he makes the land clean. I think there's a parallel here for sure. Not only that, but he restores the demon-possessed man living in the graveyard, clothes him, and makes him clean as well. When we piece together all these weird and crazy details, this legion, this pigs, this Gentile land, these tombs, this strange man and strange story, I think we begin to see a more clear picture of Jesus emerge. Jesus is a God who is unbothered by the carefully crafted picket fences of boundaries and walls that we put between us and the other people around us. Jesus is unconcerned with both the ritual and social societal cleanliness of the people. He came for all people to make all people clean, to restore all people. The cultural boundaries and practices that divide, the government that divides, even the land that divides, remember the sea is against them, is all rejected and humiliated by a Christ that came for all and came to unite all under his name in this story. How do we adjust our vision to see God for who he is? Well, I think it starts by seeing a God unconcerned with our petty differences and squabbles an intent on bringing us directly to the people that we reject and cast out. We see a God that goes to the rejected, the outcast, and loves them. But does not only does God go there, but what does he do in this story? He intentionally brings his disciples with him through a stormy water to the most unclean place. He brings the disciples with him. I think that is the challenge for us in our examination today. As we ask God to examine our hearts to know us, I think that as our question is, where is Jesus leading us that we don't want to go, that we think is so unclean? Because in this story, it's clear that Jesus did. He took the disciples to the ultimate place of uncleanliness, as I've said many times already, and makes every part of it clean. Are we so vain to think that Jesus only did this in the Bible, that he doesn't do it in our lives as well today? Are we so comfortable in our man-made bubbles that we do not see the people that we've kept out? Our experiences in life, I hope, show us that Jesus frequently forces us to confront our false stereotypes, 
our picket fence boundaries head on with the people we view as unclean, unloved by Jesus. Our story ends in verses 18 through 20, which read, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. What a feel-good ending to this, that not only did Jesus make this unclean man possessed by legions of demons clean, but this man now wants to be a disciple too. But continuing to subvert our expectations, Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Much like Jesus intentionally leads his disciples to this area that the Jewish people feared and hated, to the people that disciples thought they would never go to, I think Jesus is doing the same thing to this Gentile man that was healed. Jesus commands him to spread his good news in the Decapolis, to stay in the region where we see in verse 5 of chapter 5 they had bound him with chains and irons, and to teach in the Decapolis, the powerful Roman cities full of Roman legions. It's pure speculation on my part, but I think staying for him was probably harder than the disciples going to him. Either way you think about it, though, what's clear, though, is Jesus leads us to people we would rather keep out of our lives, people that don't fit the status quo, our societal norms, our boundaries, our well-painted fences. Jesus leads us to people that force us to cast aside this world's definition of clean and unclean, loved and unloved, blessed and forgotten if we are to truly embody the love of Jesus. It's nice to sit and think about everything that Jesus did here and forget that as disciples of Christ that we have the same call. The same call to break and be unbothered by the boundaries that divide the pressures of this world. I think to help us with that, we need to look at John 17 that Jeremy preached on last week which comes to its end, which towards the end, I guess, in verse 24 reads, Father, I want those you have, been, you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before we get to our last reflection, I want us to sit with this verse a bit as Jesus is praying to the Father before he is crucified. This call to love and see as Jesus loves is obviously incredibly difficult. In the story, we see two different people witnessing Jesus' miracles, first his disciples and then second the villagers. And what happened to both of them? They were afraid. That's what the verses say. And it's scary for us too. But what helps us is this verse that helps us remember that we don't follow Jesus, embody his love for ourselves to check off a box. But we do it even more, not even because Jesus did it, 
but we do it to be where Jesus is. In this verse, it says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. I think the story makes clear that Jesus is in the places outside of our boundaries, outside of our fences that we've made, and that to see Jesus, we must cross our boundaries and fences. But I don't think it quite ends there. To be with me where I am. How do we be with Jesus where he is? How do we cast aside the fog that prevents us from seeing the people around us, the things around us as Jesus sees? How do we stop seeing the unclean, the outcast, and the other? What I think is not only that we have to leave our boundaries and our fences, but we have to begin to see people as Jesus does, to see Jesus in people. Not only are we content to leave to this unclean region, the garrison region, but we have to see the demon-possessed man there as Jesus saw him. We have to see Jesus in him and the power with him. In this kingdom that Jesus initiated, that broke all our boundaries and conceptions, we learned that there's no room for these anything, these boundaries, ideas, or walls that keep people out or that prevent us from seeing Jesus in them. In this last reflection, the guiding prompts will appear on the screen in a second. And just take a few moments to reflect on this last question. Once you hear Chaz playing in the background, please come up and grab the communion elements. And after Chaz's song is over, we'll take them together after confession. So this last question, reflect on what walls you have put up between you and other people and ask God if they are from him. Seek why you have built these walls, comfort, security, peer pressure, and ask God to reveal them to you. And even more at the end, let me just add, and ask God to show you the people that you don't see him in, and ask him to reveal himself and the people around you.